Welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. On today's show, we're replaying our September 14th Trek Talks event with Ross Ramsey of the Texas Tribune, breaking down the redistricting process that is now ongoing in the Texas State Legislature. We're very grateful to Ross for sharing his expertise with us. He is the executive director and co-founder of the Texas Tribune and covers politics, government, and public policy. He was previously the editor and co-owner of Texas Weekly and spent a little more than two years with the Texas Comptroller of Public Accounts. He has also worked as a reporter for the Houston Chronicle and Dallas Times-Herald and was a Dallas-based freelancer for several regional and national magazines and newspapers and for radio stations in Dallas and Denton. A quick reminder before we begin to subscribe to TrackCast if you haven't already and follow us on social media. We've linked to all of our handles and pages in the show notes, so go check that out once you've finished listening to this episode. Now, here's Ross Ramsey on redistricting right here on TrackCast. Um, hello, everybody, and thanks for joining. This is our Trek Talks. I think it's at Trek Talks number three, if I'm not mistaken, and we're focusing on redistricting in Texas. Um, next Monday, just a little update, next Monday, September 20th, the Texas legislature will kick off its third special session of the 87th legislature. And as expected, a big chunk of the upcoming um, topics will be focused on redistricting. Um, driven by new census numbers, the state legislature is responsible for redrawing the legislative maps at the state and congressional levels to reflect the changes in our Texas population, as you know. And it's no secret that our state's um, population is growing rapidly. And though some of the legislative districts are shrinking, other districts are expanding. It's interesting um, that many of the state's current um, lawmakers will be participating in changing the maps to their own districts, um, which are either shrinking in size or, or of course growing exponentially. So moreover, the state's population growth is being ignited by residents new to Texas, as we all know, uh, dealing with our highways, uh, just get across town on any given day, don't try traveling Friday night. And chiefly, the Hispanic population has increased. So needless to say, the voting block in Texas, we expect to change. And this demographic shift will, of course, um, impact our political landscape. So without any further ado, let's just jump right into an introduction to our guest speaker, Ross Ramsey. And I have the pleasure today of giving a brief introduction for Mr. Ramsey. He is executive director and co-founder of the Texas Tribune. Uh, before joining the Tribune, uh, Mr. Ramsey was editor and co-owner of Texas Weekly for 15 years. He did a 28 month stint in government as associate deputy comptroller for policy and director of communications with the Texas Comptroller Public Accounts Office. And before that, he reported for the Houston Chronicle from its Austin Bureau and for the Dallas Times Herald. First on the business desk in Dallas and later as its Austin Bureau Chief and worked as a Dallas-based freelance business writer writing for regional and national magazines um, and newspapers. Um, Ross Ramsey got his start in journalism and broadcasting, covering news for radio stations in Benton and Dallas. And after his uh, presentation, uh, those on the line will have an opportunity to ask Ross Ramsey questions. But for now, let's please welcome him to Trek Talks. And thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Maddie. I got to cut that thing down. It sounds more and more like an obituary, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> thank you for the introduction. I appreciate sure. it. So the, the, there's a couple of numbers from the census that I think are really interesting and that in some ways encapsulate what's gonna happen with redistricting this time. 39% um, of the people in Texas live in four of the state's 254 counties. 50% live in seven counties. 61% live in 11 counties. And 80% live in 31 counties. There's 254 counties total. 190 counties altogether have less than 10% of the population. Um, so one of the things, one of the ways to think about redistricting this time is to ignore um, politics for a minute and think about geography. Texas is compacting itself or is growing faster in the triangle with Dallas, Fort Worth at the top, Austin, San Antonio on one corner and Houston on the other corner. 
that's where most of the population is in those cities and the suburbs that are around them. Carl Rove used to have this theory of Texas politics. It's the, it was in his original memo to Bill Clements, which is floating around somewhere. You can find it on the internet. It would, there were seven counties in Texas. And if you won in those seven suburban counties, you would have enough Republican strength to outrun your losses in the urban centers. Um, so you could lose the city of Dallas. In those days, Dallas County was kind of purple. But you could lose the city of Dallas. And if you won Collin County, Denton County, Tarrant County, which isn't actually a suburb, but for this analysis is, Williamson County by Austin, Fort Bend County and Montgomery County over by Harris County. If you won those counties, you could win as a Republican candidate. Those counties all voted for Biden in the last election. Um, they uh, slipped back to Republicans for most of their votes. And I think in a normal election, they probably remain slightly red, but they're now in play. And as the state grows more populous in the blue dots, if you think of Texas as a big um, Texas-shaped bowl of tomato soup with blueberries in it on election day, the red parts of the state are the least populated parts of the state. Trump still won the state, but he won by less than a million votes. And one of the things that you're seeing in redistricting is that compaction. And you're also seeing Republicans who are in the majorities in both the House and the Senate, where they're going to draw the maps, uh, in a position where they can easily draw Republican districts in most of the counties in Texas, all of that red area that you see on the map after Election Day. But that's not really where the people are. And redistricting is going to be an exercise of going into blue and purple areas and isolating this set of voters and that set of voters. It's kind of like going through a bunt cake and trying to find the chocolate part and separating it from the vanilla part um, with a map and doing it in a way that doesn't violate any of the laws about drawing lines according to race or ethnicity, about breaking up uh, communities of interest, they call them. You know, if you've got a bunch of people around, you know, who have a very tight-knit neighborhood around a high school, Redistricting law is supposed to, so, supposed to protect communities like that so that you don't split them in half and divide their interests. So there's a lot of things at play, but the first geographic thing I think is really, really interesting. The other thing that I thought was like a top line and interesting number from the census was that 60%, slightly more than 60% of the state of Texas is people of color. Um, what they call non-Hispanic, uh, whites or Anglos, however you want to say, is 39% and change. Latinos in the state are 39% and change, just slightly below the non-Hispanic whites. Uh, Black Texans account for about 12 or 13%, Asians for six or seven, and the rest is miscellaneous or mixed. And if you think about those numbers and you think about the old ways of you know, doing sort of a rough cut on politics, you, could, you would say that Republicans are in trouble. What I mean by the old ways, for a time, you know, through probably you know, into this century, you could safely say that if a district in Texas was primarily made up of white people, it was probably Republican. If it was primarily made up of black people, it was probably strongly Democratic. If it was Hispanics, it was probably 66, 67% Democratic. And you could do kind of a rough cut that way. It doesn't work so well anymore. Um, black Texans tend still to be, uh, to stick with Democrats. Um, Hispanics are largely up, to up for grabs. Um, there's still uh, Democrats on balance, but there are places in the state where Democrats have gotten so used to winning that they've really stopped working for it. I don't know if you saw the stories at the end of the 2020 election about some of the South Texas counties that Democrats have just assumed were in their camp. A couple of them actually went for Trump, but a lot of them uh, went for Biden in much smaller percentages than they have in the past. So one of the things that's gonna happen in redistricting is Republicans and Democrats alike will be trying to isolate um, their voters uh, more than they will be trying to, you know, figure out this person is white, so they probably vote that way and things like that. If you get into the software of voting now and, and into the professional um, stuff behind politics, they're really, really specific about 
um, how different households vote. They can tell a lot about, you know, when someone comes to your house with a clipboard a couple of weeks before an election says, hi, I'm trying to get people to register to vote or I'm trying to get voters out. They know how the residents of the house probably vote if you are primary voters. If you're not primary voters, they can use a lot of other things that you see in commercial advertising to make some assumptions. If you know that your primary voters, you know, all drive the same sorts of cars and you've got somebody who you can't identify as a Democrat or Republican, but they drive that kind of car, that might be a way to do it. Uh, there are a bunch of ways into it. They can get really very, very specific about household by household, how people actually or probably vote. They don't know, obviously, that you, know, you pulled the lever for this candidate or that candidate, but they know your tendencies and they play the tendencies and that's you know, kind of how this game works. The other thing that doesn't get set in redistricting, but that is at play is turnout in elections. In Texas, for a long time, it's been true that a low turnout election is probably a Republican election, and a big turnout election is probably still Republican, but not by nearly as much. So when you see a low turnout election in Texas, the Republicans do well in House and Senate races, county commissioner races, sheriff's races, all those kinds of things. When you see a big turnout election, the numbers get tighter. In the 2018 election in Texas, this was the one with the marquee race was Ted Cruz versus Beto O'Rourke. People on both sides got really excited. There was a lot of chatter about that race. Um, and the turnout went way up. And Democrats had an unexpectedly good year. They didn't win majorities in the House or the Senate or the congressional delegation. But they had a lot of almosts. And they picked up seats in, in those places. So they picked up 13 seats in the Texas House that none of us who've been looking at maps for all these years thought they could get they came close in that Senate race. Ted Cruz didn't win by much. Greg Abbott turned out to be the savior of most of the Republicans, beating Lupe Valdez, Dallas, former Dallas County Sheriff, by about 10 points. And that saved Dan Patrick, who won by less than five, Ken Paxton, who won Attorney General by less than five, Sid Miller, who won Agriculture Commissioner by less than four points, I think. There were a lot of really close races because the turnout was high. So before I get into the details of redistricting, let's talk just for a minute about 2022 and how it sets up. Presidents' parties don't typically do very well in midterm elections. You'll remember that 2018 election I'm talking about was also Donald Trump's midterm election. Um, that's when um, you know they vote for you in that first election, then they vote with their middle finger in that second election. Uh, it's, it's tough on the incumbents. So Trump's party didn't do well in 2018. Obama, if you'll remember, in 2010, that was the year of the Tea Party, when the Republicans swept a bunch of races nobody thought they would sweep. Um, you know, it just happens. Bill Clinton in 1994. George Bush got a pass because his midterm election came after 9-11 and voters were rallied behind him and incumbents. It was a different kind of an election. So you set up uh, the 2022 election as a midterm for Joe Biden that's a potential strike against the Democrats and a potential advantage for the Republicans. Uh, Greg Abbott, we were, uh, I was talking to Sam a little bit before we got started. Greg Abbott doesn't have an opponent yet, which is a really great way to win a race. Um, he's the incumbent governor. He's running for reelection. At mid-year, he had $55 million in the bank, which is just incredible. I've been watching this for 30 years and I've never seen anything like that outside of a candidate who walked into a race with a bunch of money of his or her own, like you know Ross Perot or Tony Sanchez. Um, so he's got an incredible advantage there. Overall, his popularity numbers are down, but his popularity with Republicans remains pretty solid. And without a Democratic opponent, all you've got to win is a Republican primary. He's got two opponents in that primary. One is Alan West, a former, he was a one-term Florida congressman who moved to Texas. He and his wife live, I believe, in Garland. And he was elected the chairman of the Texas Republican Party and is running at Abbott and calling Abbott insufficiently conservative. Uh, so if you can imagine somebody running to the right of Greg Abbott, the other one running to the right of Greg Abbott is also from the Dallas area. Uh, Don Huffines, the former state senator, uh, I think the grandson of the founder of Huffines Chevrolet and all those car dealerships. Um, he's running and his, he's also running as... Um, more conservative than Greg Abbott. In fact, his billboards, if you see them, say Don Huffines, actual Republican. 
So you can kind of see how that's going to go. I don't think either one of them has the political strength to really threaten the governor, but you always watch their opposition and there's no democratic opposition right now to watch. So he's got his eye on those guys. Um, and as so the second piece of this is it's a democratic year at the top because of the midterm. I'm sorry, a Republican year at the top because of the midterm. The governor who has the leading race, and this is the race that attracts or doesn't attract voters to uh, an election, doesn't have an opponent. So if it's going to be a high turnout election, you're going to have to get a race at the top that everybody's talking about. You don't have that right now. Low turnout elections tend to be Republican. So that's that way. And then the last thing that happens is what we're really here to talk about is that a Republican majority in the Texas legislature has the opportunity starting on Monday of next week to draw political maps that, unless I'm insane, will favor Republicans for office. Um, that's, that's how you do it. When the, I'm old enough to remember when the Democrats were in the majority and they were drawing maps and they drew maps that favored Democrats. So to the extent that you can within all the laws, if you're a legislator, you try to draw districts, uh, try to draw as many districts that favor your party as you think you can safely win over time. And if you do it right and the numbers hold through the decade, you've got a pretty lasting majority. Uh, the Republicans drew the maps in 2001. They drew them again in 2003, got them more the way they wanted them. They drew them in 2011 after the 2010 census. And now that we finally have the 2020 census, which was delayed by COVID, they're coming in a special session on Monday to draw the map. So uh, the Republican majority that has been in place in the House and the Senate for more than 20 years is uh, that that majority is in a position to keep it going. So uh, that's kind of how this lays out. If you look at the specifics on how those uh, districts are compacting and you think about that map, think about that big bowl, that big Texas shaped bowl of tomato soup, the places that are red on that map, the rural areas of West Texas, the rural areas of East Texas and some of the rural areas of South Texas are losing population relative to the cities at the corners and inside those triangles. And that means that if, they're, if you're a state senator, I'll pick on Kel Seliger for a minute. He's a Republican from Amarillo, uh, popular at home. He's a former mayor of Amarillo. He's in a district that is suddenly short of people, which means that in order to get his district up to the number of people that it needs, so you can draw 31 districts of the same size in the Senate, he has to acquire some real estate. And as he does that, he's going to run into other West Texans who also are short of population. And you know, one of the things that's uh, going on in West Texas right now is those guys are all looking at each other and saying, one of us might fall. If you're Kel Seliger, you've got Amarillo and a district that somehow goes down and scoops up Midland. Uh, Lubbock has its own district. Abilene is split between a senator from Lake Travis outside of Austin and the one from Lubbock. None of those cities want to be in the same Senate district. Just, this is just an example of what happens in, in redistricting. All of them want to be the main focus of attention. You know, if I'm Lubbock, I don't want to be in a district with Amarillo because Amarillo might get some of the attention. If you've got a brother or a sister, you know exactly how this kind of politics works. Um, I want mom to pay attention to me. Um, but if you're losing population and as a whole, West Texas is going to lose a House seat or a senator or even a member of Congress, then you start looking at, over your shoulder at each other and trying to figure out who's going to step aside, if anybody, and if nobody will step aside, who's going to get stomped. And this is where redistricting starts to get kind of nasty, even among members of the same party. You know, at some point, it's a survival game. It's generally true that the Senate draws the Senate maps and the House draws the House maps. Neither one of them trusts the other one. They basically get their map where they want it and they swap. And the place where uh, redistricting is most interesting if you're a political junkie like I am is to watch what they do with Congress because they mostly, unless you're a Senator and you wanna run for Congress, Eddie Bernice Johnson did that a few years ago, uh, drew a map that drew her a district and she's held it ever since she drew that map in 1990. Um, or 1991, rather. If you're in those positions, you first look at where all the incumbents are, and then you start looking at where things have to move, and then you start looking at party advantage. They don't start with party advantage. Um, a lot of the consultants and 
advisors and people like that are thinking about, we need more Republican seats, we need more Democratic seats. The members themselves first look at political survival and then look after their friends if they can and then get to party. Um, in a case of a place like Dallas, the regular deal for a chairperson, somebody running the redistricting committee in the House or Senate is to go to the delegation and say, why don't you draw a map? If you look at the maps of Texas for redistricting, you can kind of see the big districts where there, aren't, where there isn't as much population. I think one of the West Texas districts has 51 counties in it in one Senate district. But when you look at the cities, when you look at Dallas and Tarrant counties and even Collin and Denton counties, there are, you have to blow it up to see all these little squiggly lines in there and see you know, who has which piece of Dallas and you know, who goes north of here and south of here and how all of that works. And one of the things that the Republicans did incorrectly in Dallas 10 years ago was they drew as many Republican House districts as they could in Dallas County and they drew them a little bit too thin. Uh, in other words, instead of drawing districts where there was sort of a solid 55 or 58% majority of Republican voters, they drew districts where there was 51% or 52%. And over 10 years, that has eroded to the point where Dallas County only has two Republican members of the House. If you look at you know, the majority in the Texas House Republican, you look at the possibilities in Dallas County, you could see a lot of those districts getting cut up uh, in order to first try to save Morgan Myers district and Angie Chen Buttons district. And second, maybe um, carve out some other districts if they can. But like I said, it's, this is like going through a marbled cake and trying to figure out how you draw a squiggly line to get these Republican voters and then go another one and get these Republican voters and then another one and another one. Um, it could be uh, quite a messy map. When you look at Dallas County, um, only one member actually lost population, Mark Vesey, whose district goes over into Tarrant County. Everybody else in the four county area, I just used um, Colin, Denton, Tarrant, and Dallas for this. Everybody else in that area in the congressional delegation actually gained population. So some of those will lose some population. And in fact, there's some talk since the Texas congressional delegation is going from 36 to 38, that the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex will get one of those two new seats. The other one will probably, but not certainly, but probably go to Harris County or someplace down there. In the Senate, uh, Nathan Johnson, the only Democrat in North Dallas in the Senate uh, lost population. Royce West lost population as well. And Kelly Hancock, whose district goes across the county line into Tarrant County, lost some population. But some others like Drew Springer, Jane Nelson, Angela Paxton, and Bob Hall all have excess population. So you'll see parts of their districts being carved away and put in other districts. And if you live in those areas and you're watching those things, you have a community of interest or someone who's been particularly well represented, you're gonna be fighting to preserve those. The house list is long. You can basically, you can look it up, but you know, there's some winners and some losers in there. Um, house districts are smaller. They're more subject to neighborhood lines. And you know, if a neighborhood is doing particularly well inside your county while another neighborhood is not doing particularly well, and here I'm talking really about population and real estate and moving around, um, you see sometimes see a lot of, a lot of movement in the, in the delegations and what they're fighting over. If you take a broader, broader look at the maps, like I said, all of those pluses that I was talking about, you know, all of those members of Congress in the Metroplex who have excess population um, are looking over at the rural members whose districts are way out there in West Texas or way out there in East Texas and wondering how far they'll try to come into Dallas or Tarrant County or Collin County um, or Denton County to try to find people. Uh, so that's gonna be sort of an interesting thing as we go through redistricting. The way this works, I'll just say briefly, is that the legislature comes in on Monday in a special session on redistricting. They have 30 days maximum. They can always go shorter if they want to, but they're gonna lay out these maps probably next week. I would assume that they've been working on them, you know, back in secret. And there are kind of, you know, in my mind, there are three kinds of maps. Um, there's, a, there's a thing down here called the Texas Legislative Council. It's like a built-in law firm inside the legislature. It's a state agency. 
and it's got the people who actually write bills, do the language, and actually draw the maps. You know, when a legislator says, I want a map that does this and that, these are the technicians who actually put all those census numbers together and do all of that kind of stuff. They have a system online, if you want to play with this, where you can go in and draw your own maps. And you can look at maps that have been filed by other people. You won't see all of everybody's work, but if I'm a member of the legislature and I get a map I like of Dallas County, I might say, well, here's the Ross Ramsey map of Dallas County and post it up, see all those kinds of things. So there's three kinds of maps, you know, in my mind, other people will, you know, divide this differently. One I call the hobby map. And a hobby map is people who are not necessarily professional politicians or not necessarily in electoral politics, but got in there and drew maps. And some of these maps are kind of good. And some of them are just flatly ridiculous or illegal. But, you know, there'll, there'll be a bunch of maps proliferate that are kind of the hobby maps. People will say, you know, it's sort of like um, some nerd going in there and drawing a map and going, see, it's easy. Um, it's not that easy, but, but there are a lot of maps like that. The second kind of map is a regional map and, or a demonstration map. You know, this is where you'll find maps of the Metroplex, where sometimes by members, sometimes by the delegation, sometimes by political consultants, but they'll say, here's how we think Dallas-Fort Worth ought to look. Here's how we think Harris County ought to look. Here's how we think the Austin-San Antonio corridor ought to look. And you'll start to see those plans take shape there and sometimes the best of those maps or the most agreed upon of those maps, um, which are not the same thing, will end up in, this, in the third kind of map, which is a statewide map that's actually going to get um, either talked about or actually considered maybe voted upon in the legislature. Because they're in a hurry, I think there's a chance that they can get maps for House, Senate, Congress, and the State Board of Education in 30 days. It's certainly not guaranteed. Um, a lot of my friends think I'm insane for saying that, but I think they can actually do this. And then you start a really long process of litigation. And by really long, I mean that when we started the 2020 census, the litigation that started with the 2010 census was not quite over yet. Um, so it goes on and on. And sometimes you'll see um, maps take new forms as they go. Um, so the legislature may draw a map that goes to court and the judges say, no, we don't like that. And they may fiddle with some lines. And as it goes up through appeals, um, depending on what the courts say, those maps could be amended and amended again. Um, sometimes you see the law change and you'll see a whole new set of maps come out sometimes. And Tom DeLay did this in 2003 in Texas and set the legal precedent. Sometimes the legislature will just come back in and say, you know, hey, we don't like the maps that we've got. We're going to redraw everything. You don't have to wait for a census. So I think all of this means that, you know, whether we get the maps quickly or not, I think we'll get them in two sessions for sure. I think we'll get them in one. There's a chance that we're going to delay the primary elections. On the current calendar, those are set for March 1st. If that was the date, then we would be filing or candidates would be filing for office from mid-November to mid-December. If you don't know what the maps are, you can't file for office. So if we take a little bit longer to get the maps, they'll delay the filing date. If they delay the filing date, they delay the primary. If they delay the primary, they delay the runoff. So you could see the whole map shift as it did um, a few years ago. Um, we had some delays in our primaries and that's how Ted Cruz um, won the Senate seat away from David Dewhurst, if you'll remember back to that political election. And instead of a March election where David Dewhurst had an advantage, we had a May election where Ted Cruz had had a chance to catch up and then he won a runoff in July. So even these calendar shifts can change the politics of everything. I want to talk a little bit about the mood of the legislature and then I'll, uh, I'll close in just a minute. You guys can, can ask questions if you've got them. The walkouts of the summer, which you probably followed, you know, if you were watching the voting law, just watching the legislature, or if you were just, you know, unfortunate enough to catch the news one night, um, the Democrats walked out, they went to Washington to deny the Republicans, the number of people in the Texas House that you need to pass legislation, they were trying to block a voting and election bill. And they did block it for about a month. The object of going to Washington was to try to convince uh, Congress to change, to either pass a law that preempted what Texas was trying to do with voting laws, or to pass legislation 
that brought Texas back into federal supervision under the Voting Rights Act. There's a provision in the Voting Rights Act that says states that have histories of discrimination in their election and voting laws can only change their laws after they have been pre-cleared by either the Department of Justice or by the Federal Circuit Court in Washington, DC. And in a case out of Alabama, the Supreme Court ruled a few years ago that the formulas for that kind of pre-clearance were out of date. And so the states like Texas that were required to go and get permission to change their laws no longer had to, and that Congress should go back and redo those formulas. Uh, so Texas is no longer under preclearance until and unless Congress redoes those formulas. They haven't yet. And now there's a push in Washington by Texas Democrats and by others, um, maybe including the White House, to get a formula into the law so that states with historic discrimination will be once again subject to preclearance. Texas could easily be one of those. Each of our last several rounds of litigation about redistricting the 2010 cases, the 2001 cases, have alleged um, racial discrimination, intentional racial discrimination on the part of the state. So it's a thing to watch. And if it were to happen, if Congress were to come in after Texas draws lines, um, then you've got a whole new set of rules and you might get a whole new set of maps. It's uh, turbulent. It's hard to describe to, um, to non-political people in terms that are really meaningful about, you know, when someone asked you, well, what does all of this mean to me? It's a little abstract. Um, sometimes you can get to it if you talk about, you know, things like school finance. And when a Texas legislature votes on school finance and they vote according to how they feel it'll, a new formula will treat the school districts in their districts. Well, the school districts in their districts are decided during redistricting. You know, how you draw the lines is how you draw your communities that you take care of. And how you draw the communities that you take care of depends on whether you're in the majority or the minority. So there's an actual effect, but it's kind of a drip, drip, drip background effect that's hard to describe to someone as if this, then that. It's more of a, if you like the way things are going and you like the way the Republicans are going with things, and Texans have for a couple of decades now, then you want them to draw the maps and you trust them to do it. If you're the Democrats and you don't like the way things are going, or even if you're a moderate and you think that, you know, maybe things ought to be um, done a little bit differently, then um, this is the time to play because we're setting the table for the next 10 years of politics. Um, and with that, I will jump out. We can talk about um, other current stuff that's going on. We can talk about redistricting, whatever you want to hit. Anyone want to go first? I guess I'm kind of intrigued over the fact that uh, Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson has had 30-year run. I do remember her being in the Texas, How uh, Texas Senate. I do remember that. And we looked up and she's been there for a minute. So um, interesting how all that came about. Well, Bob Bullock knew that the state, you know, under the law at that time, that the state was going to need to draw a seat that had a majority of black voters and probably in Dallas County. And seeing that and knowing her ambitions and they were allies at the time, he named her chairwoman of the redistricting committee. So the boss of maps. So, you know, guess what happened? Um, right. So you had a Senator drawing maps with the support of the Lieutenant governor and most of the, most of the other Democrats at the time. And she's been in Congress ever since. Hey Ross, uh, you did answer one of my questions, which I think, just intuitively, you would think that your response uh, of you know, one congressman in Dallas County and one congressman in Harris County uh, makes sense. So uh, I was wondering, and you mentioned Nathan Johnson, you mentioned Angie Chen Button, um, you mentioned Morgan Meyer. Are there any? state reps or state senators that you think are at risk, their incumbency is at risk? It depends, you know, part of this depends on how many people quit. Um, one of the interesting things in redistricting is somebody raises their hand and says, I'm not gonna run for reelection. John Turner, for example, up in North Dallas um, is not gonna run for reelection. And that suddenly puts a little bit of slack in the map 
So now Dallas can, you know, there's a there's room to move without hurting somebody for the people that immediately surround him and that ripples out through the county. So whether you're going after incumbents or not, partly depends on whether you have to or not. Then there's the, do you want to or not? You know, what happened in the Nathan Johnson seat is that that seat was drawn for Republicans. Right. And um, John Perona had it, and then Don Huffines had it. And right. in an election where the Democrats were performing well and where turnout was really high, 2018, um, and where there was some antipathy in that district to Don Huffines, um, Nathan Johnson got by. Um, so the question now is, do you draw the map if you're a Republican in the in the state Senate because you know they've got the majority? Do you spend your time going after Nathan Johnson, or do you use that district as kind of a heat sink? Maybe we can put some more Democrats in that district, draw that district so that it's got some more Democrats. And yeah, that helps Nate, Nathan Johnson, but it might help the Republicans around him to lose some of their Democrats. And if we can siphon some of those Democrats, this is a hypothetical, obviously, but if, we, if you can siphon some of those Democrats into his district and by doing so buttress the Republican seats around him, that might turn out to be the better strategy. And you know, you're gonna have people who say, no, take everything now, which is what the Republicans did in 2010. And the districts were great in the first elections after those maps were drawn and eroded pretty quickly over the decade. Or you can say, don't get greedy now, let's draw lasting districts and let Nathan have his seat. I don't know which strategy they'll take, but those are the two obvious ones in front of you. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's hard. And you know, if, you, if you look at that district, Bob Hall has to find population somewhere. Um, he's coming in from the east. He has a bunch of eastern counties and then a big chunk of eastern Dallas County. Um, the West District is a little bit short. The Hancock District, which comes into the western part of Dallas County, is short. Um, so how you move these, how you squash these districts around is going to be really, really interesting. And it might be that the Republicans say, look, we'll get a lasting majority, but only if we just hold our nose and forfeit the Nathan Johnson seat. And look, that's been a Republican district before, and it's clearly got a lot of Republicans in it. And it could, you know, I mean, Johnson's got to watch his back, even if, even if we weren't in a redistricting year and, you know, he was running in the district that he has now. So, you know, there are a bunch of ways to cut that. If I could just ask one more and I'll, then I'll shut up. Um, just, if there's one, it looks like we're going to get a congressperson from Dallas area, and it looks like we're going to get a congressperson from the Houston area. And both those core counties, Dallas and Harris, plus some of the suburban counties now are uh, blue, are we going to get more Democratic Congress people or not? Depends on how you draw the maps. Um... The first thing to remember, and I know you know this, is that you know a county being blue could mean it's 51% Democratic. It's still pretty red. Still got a lot of red people in it. I mean, and and the maps and this whole this whole tortured analogy I was using about marble cake. Um, you know, you can go through a district and find the Republicans and draw Republican districts. If I have a county that voted 60-40 Democratic and it gets 10 seats in the Texas House, I should be able to draw that so that there are at least four Republican seats, right? Um, yep. So when you, when you come into this, you look at it and you say, okay, so if I was drawing congressional lines and I wanted to get another seat in Dallas, what would that seat look like? And it depends on what you do with other parts of the state. There's a really smart guy named Dave Wasserman at a publication in Washington called the Cook Political Report. Um, and in the last redistricting, one of the things the Republicans did was they took Travis County where Austin is and they chopped it to pieces. And so Austin doesn't have a member of Congress who just represents Austin. My, my congressman, I live in central Austin about two miles from downtown. 
and my member of Congress is Roger Williams from Weatherford, Texas. Um, my neighbor right across the Colorado River um, lives in Mike McCall's district, and that district goes all the way to Houston. So they carved up Austin and they did it, you know, uh, partly because nobody in Republican politics likes Austin, but they also did it because they could, they could make these districts that way. Wasserman has done a map, a sort of a prep map based on the new census and says, you know, look, here is a way the Republicans could do this. And it involves taking all of the districts in Austin and blowing them up and drawing a Travis County district. And it has the advantage of putting all of the Democrats that are in those four or five Republican districts into one district of their own, and then using the Republicans to draw other maps. And if you do that, the way it ripples out can be can ripple out in a way that accrues to the benefit of Republicans and means that the Republicans in one scenario could draw two new congressional districts, one in Dallas, one in Houston, that are Republican seats. Long answer to your question. But you know, the 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 thing is not always local, particularly in congressional maps. There's a there's a, a thing called the county line rule. So if you're drawing districts for the Texas House, you can't draw a district that crosses a county line unless you're out of people, right? So it's to prevent you from hopping a county, county line. And right now, if you look at the Dallas and Tarrant and Collin and Denton maps, for all of the swirls in there, none of the house districts crosses a county line. There's no county line rule in the Senate and in Congress uh, because the districts are bigger and it's just not a practical idea. So I can do something in a Midland district that accrues to the benefit of somebody in East Texas, if I'm careful in how I'm drawing the maps. And when you're, when you're talking about drawing new districts for Dallas or for Houston, um, you kind of have to look at how the whole map operates. Uh, and the people who do this are really uh, either very, very creative and clever or super devious, but they're good at this. Ross, may I? A question. Um, sure. The delayed primary um, 10 years ago really changed the electoral math in the US Senate seat. Is that something that is an incentive to electeds to pay attention to, or is it kind of uh, ancient history or, or just out of their control? Well, it's funny how fast things like this become ancient history. You know, there are a lot of members in the legislature who've never done redistricting. And there are a lot of them who certainly don't know all the folklore in that time when Eddie Bernice drew a seat and that time where this happened to that happened. You know, that's for old people like me. And, and you know, there are some people in the legislature who know those kinds of things, you know, but um, it's hard to tell when you delay a primary or when you do something like that, who's going to have the benefit. It accrues to the, you know, it's generally true, not always, but it's generally better for incumbents to vote before their challengers are well known. And delaying an election makes a challenger more well known. Ted Cruz had no chance of beating David Dewhurst or Tom Leppert or Craig James in that Senate race. Those were the four candidates in that race. Um, and, you know, whatever you think of uh, Craig James and the Mustangs, you know, everybody knew his name. Um, and Tom Leppert, you know, had that big base in Dallas County. But because the clock ran and ran and the race wasn't in March, but it was in May, Ted Cruz had time to get a lot of, uh, to gain a lot of steam. And in some ways, in a, in a strange way, this is just an aside, ran the kind of guerrilla race that almost got him beat in 2018 when Beto O'Rourke ran a uh, jazzed up version of the same kind of race. You know, if you can get the attention and get the money and you're the exciting candidate in a, in a boring field, uh, you can do wonders in politics and time is on the side of a challenger. I have a question. Are you gonna jump in, Dave? You can go. I was about to, but go for it, Courtney. Well, I, I remember a, a story in early 2020 about working strategist who had passed away. His daughter got a copy of his, um, hard drive that had a lot of information on how he went about strategically redistricting in a number of states. It was like North Carolina, uh, Mississippi, it included Texas. And when you take that story and you layer on top of it, things like the Shelby County decision or Brnovich, it really, there's, 
to me, a sense that as a common citizen, whether I like the way the maps are drawn or I, I don't, it feels somewhat pointless to get in, involved or to uh, even have an opinion to express on it. And I was just wondering if you could comment on, you know, what the, the futility in some ways of, of this process. You know, this is, um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of things like this in politics and in business. You know, the people who play all the time are the experts. Um, you know, if you were, uh, you know, if you're out buying a house and you're talking to a real estate agent, they do this all the time and you do it once every 15 years. And to some extent, that's how you feel going into redistricting. You know, if you um, are looking at this as how can I influence the whole map, then I think you're right. I think it's, you know, it's the people like the guy with the hard drives who draw the maps. But at the same time, there's a lot to be said for what, gets, what happens in public testimony. And the courts really do look at this and they really do consider things like communities of interest. And you know, there are cases where you know, people try to draw a line around you know, um, objects. There are important things, you know, they're important for different reasons. So if I'm running for, one of the things Eddie Bernice did was when she drew that district, she drew downtown into that district because that's where all the donors are. You know, there was a fight a couple of years ago when Joe Barton held up the whole process so that he could get the maps redone just a little bit to get the Ranger Stadium in his district and Jerry World. Um, you know, there are a lot of things like that that you do in politics. But when you start playing on that level, people are messing with communities of interest. There may be the case that um, in a particular situation locally, you testify, look, you got to keep this school with these people and you got to keep, you know, this community together because it's been stitched together over years. And um, it's, it, this is a regular argument that we see successfully done, particularly in um, communities of color, but it doesn't really need to be a community of color. It just needs to be a solid community and there needs to be a really good political reason to split it or the testimony of normal people can turn the map back against the way the legislator wants to do it. All of that said, without being cynical, I have to say that the guy with the hard drive that you're talking about has a clear advantage over the rest of us because the, he was in there all the time. He was playing all the time in the same way that if you went to Austin for the first time ever and was trying, were trying to find your way around the state capitol to get you know, a low water crossing fixed in your community and you were uh, fighting against lobbyists who were over there all the time, the royal court has the advantage. Curious about District 4, given how heavily red it is, is there a chance they carve that up and try and use that to create a, a more red district somewhere else? I'm terrible at numbers. District 4 is who? That's the northeast corner of the state. It's big. It's from Rockwall to Texarkana. You know, that's one of those districts that's shrinking. The, you're talking about, is this Congress? Yeah. Um, See if I have this on this. This is my cheat sheet. Because I think the, it's um, Pat Fallon. It's uh, population, I think, maybe going up. So that's why I was curious if you they start carving people off the yeah. Yeah, west Fallon, side. And Fallon's gaining population. Uh, Gooden gained population. And Gomert lost population. So you see where that's going. Yep. Right. Um, but you've got this. Um, so, so those guys should be OK. Where East Texas really has more of its problems is Southeast, you know, down in the Golden Triangle and in, yep. and in you know, from probably like Shelby County down. Uh, those are the guys who are short of population and they're going to be, um, you know, passing the plate around Houston, trying to get population and, and preserve themselves. Yeah, I was thinking more about the West, the West side of District 4, you know, because population is going up that they start trying to pull some of that stuff into the districts across uh, Lake Ray Hubbard in Dallas that need some more help. Part of this is going to be um, an argument about what Fallon wants to hold on to. You know, when you're in a district that's large, you know, like Jane Nelson has this, this is a persistent thing. And if you think about where she is in Texas, this has been a persistent thing throughout her career in the Senate. Her district is always way overpopulated at the end of a decade. 
And so they're always shrinking that down. And the first thing you do when, you, when you're shrinking it down is you say, hey, hey Jane, what's dearest to you? Which, which if you could only live in one part of your district, where are you gonna live? Um, and I assume Fallon is looking at this and thinking, you know, I, he's more of a suburban candidate than a rural candidate. Right. And I got to think that if, if he has to pull in, he's going to pull in toward Collin County yep. or toward Denton County. And it okay. looks like the numbers are there for him to do that. But I'm not sure that, you know, the problem with being a, a member of Congress is that suddenly the he, he had more clout in the legislature when he was a legislator. And now he's just another guy from Washington. Thanks. You bet. Anyone else? Let me just say, as we, as we go forward, we'll be all over this story and um, we'll be publishing maps and all of those kinds of things. And anytime, you know, you have a question about this stuff, hey, how come this story didn't say that? Or, you know, where do I find a map or where do I find the data on this? Just flip me a note, uh, texastribune.org. There's a thing at the bottom for staff. You can click on that, you know, click through to my email or call me on the phone, whatever. Uh, we're happy to help with this stuff. Um, nerds stick together. <laughs> thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank, thank you. you. This has been super informative. Um, I learned something every time and I'm, I love Texas politics. I grew up in East Texas and um, just grew up with it in my, you know, life as a little girl and just have always been interested in it. And every time I hear, uh, talks like yours, it just reminds me of just how rich and different our state is. So this has been super informative, um, and I'm sure everybody um, here today has enjoyed it. And we will definitely um, hit you up on your .org with any questions, and uh, this has been fantastic. All right. We'll see you all soon. That's all for today's show. I'd like to thank Ross Ramsey of the Texas Tribune for his time and insights on the redistricting process. If you like what you heard on today's show, please subscribe to TrekCast on your favorite podcast platform to get all new episodes as they are released. Follow Trek on social media for the latest from around the organization, including upcoming event information, member spotlights, and exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. We've linked to all of our pages and handles in the description. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.